I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hi, this is the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I am so delighted to be joined today by Sloane Crosley. Sloane is the author of the novel The Clasp, and the essay collections look alive out there and the New York Times bestsellers, I was told there'd be cake and how did you get this number? A frequent contributor to the New York Times, she lives in Manhattan and her new novel is called Cult Classic. Hi Sloan. Hello, welcome to your podcast. No, thank you for having me on. <laughs> Very excited, hello. Yay, I'm so happy to have you here. And I don't normally like to start a podcast by talking about someone else's book, but <laughs> I feel like you might have strong opinions about this. I remember a, um, a book come out, came out a few years ago and it was called Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. <laughs> um. Is that the, is it more of a comment? That's the question. Yes, that's <laughs> do, the do question. Okay. I, now that you have invoked the name of this title, I do have a vague recollection of some kind of piece in Vanity Fair about it. Um, and, and perhaps a controversial piece in the style section where people were up in arms about maybe the cynicism of it. Obviously um, it's either, that is either, I've never read it. Uh, so obviously mm -hmm. that title is either self-help or like the most ingenious loss, like Laura Kipnis <laughs> <laughs> title I've ever heard. <laughs> um, I don't, yeah, but I understand why you're asking uh, because the, so much about uh, Co Classic, the novel is about um, the heroine learning the positive aspects of settling it gets a bad rap um that there's a way to settle um as in figure out what you really need mm -hmm. um and then there's settling as in uh letting the things that you really want go and i don't i don't believe in the latter so 
um, I'm still a little bit too much of a romantic for, I, I shouldn't say anything though. I haven't read the book. Maybe it's literally, maybe it is the nonfiction companion to my novel. For, okay. Wait, for, for, for the sake of this podcast, let's say it could be. I, okay, I, I, think, okay. <laughs> I think I got defensive because I got this impression that the, that the audience was, you know, I was the target audience. <laughs> so this is, this had to be, uh, had you just gotten ago. married or were engaged to be so, or no, I was still single. So it had okay. to be. Oh, okay. Okay. And there was this idea that New York city women want it all. <laughs> They're too picky. Um, and they're not realistic about things. <laughs> Sorry, I know I'm laughing because um, the amount of, of realism that is steadily thrown into your face every day living in the city in arenas that extend far beyond romance. Just you get up and you get out of bed and the city's like, all right, this is cute. Let's see if you can handle this. You know, I mean, I almost got pissed on today in the subway on West 4th, but not intentionally. It was just sort of a, a circular uh, naked motion that a lot of people almost got pissed on today. I oh, was no. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like, you know, the idea that uh, New York City women are prone to, to not understanding realism. I mean, I understand why people think that not just about New York, but about urban areas in general, that we have so much choice and we have so much stimuli and therefore we have short circuited ourselves out of having a normal life. And, uh, you know, Esther Perel, I am not, so I don't know, maybe people are thinking about this, uh, but yeah, in defense of all uh, single, formerly single New York ladies, uh, we're really working with what we've got <laughs> we sure and we're really trying very, very hard. And so I sort of, I like you, um, resent the idea that uh somehow uh we are deciding somebody has bad breath or snores or doesn't have a good enough job and we're dismissing them out of hat that's ludicrous and i do feel like and lola your heroine kind of embodies this yeah that there is a narrative that you get into if you're a single woman in in a city for long enough and that becomes such a an important part of your identity Absolutely. I was just, um, I was with a friend uh, recently who's Scottish, really, really Scottish. She's from the Shetland Islands. And she was, I was telling her about a situation from years ago with a guy. And she asked me what had ever happened with that guy. And, and my sort of glossing over of events was saying something like, oh, uh, I didn't have enough space for XYZ. Some, some sort of emotional you know, thing. And she just cackled at the sky and said, that is the most American shit I've ever heard in my life. Where, you know, she's like, do you know how many people in my hometown are like, he's got teeth and he doesn't like, you know, beat you and he's nice to his mother and he helps old ladies across the street and he's not, you know, drunk. Like, but at the same time, it's like, but that's the thing is you sort of, and in, in this character very much in the novel too. I mean, it is, she's such a, um, a deep, mess and a deep commitment phobe and there's so much about her that I, that is different than me I mean that happens with everybody 
who writes fiction mm -hmm. that is remotely autobiographical, which is weird because there's so much um, wacky stuff that happens in this book to say it's autobiographical is like that autobiographical novel about a spaceship. <laughs> but, but, it, it, but it's like, she is me, but I mean, she is, sorry, rather she, she can edit that as at will. She's not, <laughs> she not me, but what she does have is this sort of like ping-ponging feeling of sometimes adopting the rhetoric of pickiness of this, this thing that you're told all the time and thinking there's a scene where she's at a bar she looks down the length of the bar and sees a guy you know with a backpack he looks pretty smart he's reading a book he's drinking a fernet I don't know what that means <laughs> but uh she's like well why couldn't I just mate with this bozo <laughs> you know and I absolutely have thought that but I have to say I don't think that's specific to dating or New York I think everybody has had a moment where they've cracked and done something extreme after having been so careful Mm-hmm. And, and Lola is, uh, you, you get to show such a wide variety of the kinds of relationships that one can have uh, through Lola. Tell me about the concept of the novel, which in, in the book, a character describes it as, or maybe Lola does, a Christmas carol, but with ex-boyfriends, which I, I found oh, yeah. very helpful to wrap my head around it. <laughs> um, she actually, I wouldn't normally correct you on a, a line I wrote, but I do think it's worth it. Cause I think she says, someone says to her, to th advises her to think of what she's about to go through, like a Christmas carol. And she says, yeah, by way of the exorcist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's an important point. That's so important. I wouldn't right. normally, you know, be like, oh, my precious words. <laughs> no. um, so, uh, yeah, she, I mean, basically what happens is, is she's sort of offered something that I think hopefully if there's a debate in the readers have about the book is whether or not you would do it, whether or not you, if offered the same thing would do it. And, you know, without spoiling it too much, she has um, a former mentor that's become sort of her best friend. I made her 37 so she could have a little bit of a life. So people could have evolved from different positions into the ones they are now and be firmly where they are now without confusion. So she used to have a lot of sexual tension with this guy and it's truly gone. You're not wondering like, are they going to get together? Right. Or at least if I've done my job, you're not wondering, are they going to get together? Um, but, you know, he basically uh, offers, because he's started what is essentially an upscale Soho housey kind of mind control cult out of an abandoned shul on the Lower East Side. Um, as one does. As one does. I mean, let it be the funniest book about a mind control cult and an abandoned shul that you've ever read. It's probably not even. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so, and so basically the, the sort of crux of it and the machinery that takes off throughout the book is that if she steps within um, a certain radius of that point, she will probably run into a former flame of hers. And that can mean a lot of things. You know, that's over the course of her whole life. Sometimes it's a long relationship. Sometimes it's a brief encounter. Um, and then we see, uh, without spoiling it, whether or not it ruins or does not ruin uh, her current relationship. And I would do it, but not because I don't think it's hell. Like that's what's strange is a lot of people, I'm, I'm noticing already this, this sort of fascinating, at least to me, obviously, uh, feedback of whether or not people think this is an obvious thing to do, an obvious scenario or a living hell. And for me, I would just be so curious about whether or not it worked. My curiosity would override the emotional fallout that was coming.
I love that. And, and yeah, I, I do feel like it's immersion therapy of the most uncomfortable kind. Yeah. It's meant to be, it's meant to be. I mean, I think there's, you know, it's so funny. So, so, you know, the FSG marvelous marketing team, um, who have done a pretty good job. <laughs> um, and, you know, I used to work in publishing, so I think I'm probably a pain in the butt to impress mm-hmm. and I'm very impressed, but, uh, they will sometimes bat around words like mystical, or they don't really say magic realism. Cause if anybody uh, is familiar with the roots of that and how you're not really supposed to co-opt it, it's probably FSG. They have a good sense of literary history. <laughs> uh, but they, you know, this idea that there's this sort of wackadoo for lack of a better term, that's uh, the right term. Yeah, sort of uh, juggernaut that hits this uh, sort of literary comedy of manners. I, they keep talking about it in these terms that it's like, oh, and this strange thing happens. And I think, I, I, I don't know if I've lost my mind. I don't know if this is what hopefully makes the book effective is that I need to be part of the brainwashed or one of the brainwashed. But I truly believe that if I had the amount of money that this organization, the book has, I could put you you or any listener (laughs) right now and someone you do not want to see in the same restaurant tonight and it would actually cost me about a fifth of what it costs in the book (laughs) and it's just I'm like this is marketing this is not you know sort of black magic I love this answer (laughs) and and I want to know a little bit more then about like subliminal advertising suggestion persuasion I mean, don't we already know? I mean, the thing is, haven't we all read enough articles in the Atlantic to know that like, it's not that we're being sold products. We are the product, you know, it's, it's really, um, I just don't think it's that hard. I think that the amount of times I look at my phone while watching TV, well, you know, the, the very things I tell my niece and nephew that I'm sort of appalled when they do but it's, it's like a real, like, it's, a, it's, it's really, they should read, um, re-up that 80s commercial uh, about weed <laughs> where the kids, like, I learned it from watching you, dad. Mm-hmm. Like, where did you get this? And I, I just feel like they should just do the entire um, PSA in the same sort of grainy 80s outfits, but uh, with the phone. <laughs> so, so I just feel like it wouldn't be that hard if, you know, this organization allegedly has a former MS, NSA member, um, a, a, a early employee of a very popular search engine, um, lawyers, uh, people who IDF with Instagram alg- algorithms, a member of the IDF. See, the thing is, uh, it is a, at its core a humor a book. It's a comedic novel. It's meant to be entertaining. So, at a certain point, like when I think about the fact that I said that a former member of the IDF worked there, I mean, I was just like it's IDF because it's not M6. Like it just, I was just sure. throwing, uh, <laughs> it's, it's intentional, that sort of part of it. I mean, that really the, the heart of the story is, um, without t- sounding too hokey, it is about um, sort of a philosophical or sort of intelligent angle on dating and romance and uh, the friends we made along the way. You know, it really is about <laughs> those characters, but the, the more, uh, I guess, I wouldn't want this used this word, the following word used about me, but I'll use it about me. It's like your mama jokes, you know, uh, zany, the more zany elements of the book. Um, I had a lot of fun with, with not knowing exactly how it would work, but also feeling like 
that space, you know, that a reader might experience, the, the sort of trust me space, what's in the gap between what I'm saying and what, what is possible in real life um, feels very simple. You know, it's not alien abduction. It's not time travel. It's not an invisibility cloak where you're like, how exactly does this work? It is just hyper media manipulation and power of suggestion. Yeah, it's, um, it could happen. Yeah, it probably is happening. It it's, probably, it's probably why we're talking <laughs> right now. It's not, <laughs> it's not because I have a book out. It's because I'm meant to see something in the background of your Zoom. And so I, I, it's true. Like you can, I can tell how much fun you had creating this kind of culty organization. Tell me a little bit about the, the basis for it. I, I would say that it, while it might be one of the, the cultishness um, and for fans of the Nexium documentary, buy a different book. <laughs> um, but I would say the cultishness of, of this novel is so prominent and so uh, sort of outward facing even in the title, but it really came as a tool or a container to create this character and to create these, this group of characters about their old friendships and their sort of ill-defined friendships and the dynamic between them. And to put, you know, when there's let's say five central characters, like to put the, the actual main character Lola really through the ringer um, and explore how much of her dating life she has gotten wrong, how much it was not really about her. Um, there's a whole lot of just when you think you know who the center of the book is, you don't. Um, and I think that, um, but I needed it, it. I just I was avoiding writing about that kind of thing. Even the, my language right now, that kind of thing romance, you know, love, the, the <laughs> thing that makes the world go around and sends, sends people to war. Um, these the aspects of ourselves that I just had kind of self-ghettoized and, 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 you know, into text messages and to um, thinking I shouldn't write about these kinds of things because as it is, I write uh, a tremendous amount of narrative nonfiction. I think I can say tremendous. It's like, you know, probably a hundred plus essays in my life that have the word I in them. And I, um, get maybe six of them have been about men or romance or dating or relationships um and but it doesn't matter the, to the world's eye i get the sense it's more like 60 percent. and so i think i was trying to avoid doing it for so long so i thought how do i this is a long long walk off a short pier um sorry it was a long way to get there but um i thought how do i do this um, in a way that's sort of hopefully original and interesting and has plot and, and is a, a vehicle for something that is a little more shiny, I guess, than a bunch of people sitting around in a bar in Brooklyn talking about their lives. Yeah. Um, another line, and correct me if I have it wrong, but that really stuck out to me Um is that Lola is thinking like, there are so many other things going on in the world. And yet I couldn't pass a Bechdel test with myself. <laughs> and like, I'm so happy that you, that you latched onto that. The shame of that. Yeah, such a shame. Well, also I can't imagine when that, I don't remember when that comes sort of within the narrative, like just from a, 
a pure page count perspective. But yeah, at a certain point, um, I don't think what's funny about it is she does seem like someone who's obsessed uh, with her past, but really it's almost a chicken and the egg thing. Like her former mentor, this man Clive, has chosen to shine a spotlight on this aspect or what he perceives as a broken aspect of her life, uh, an inability to make decisions, to make commitments, to choose wisely. Um, and so what's funny about it is that she is sort of disgusted with herself because I, I think before the book started, she wasn't like this. <laughs> In my mind, you know, people always ask what a novel uh, and you know what do you think happens to these characters and I'm I, I, I do think about that but I also think about what happened before it began um, and I don't think she was quite this crazy before Clive slash I made her this crazy yeah you, you and just it. it just and it is crazy I, I you know I'm sorry to you know throw around the c word <laughs> when it comes to a woman especially when it comes to something as genuinely insane making as as, as dating in new york but um yeah she becomes a sort of portal has opened for her to answer all of her obsessions for her to scratch that itch and um every time she does that she gets closer to it, it's like a drug you know you get that temporary hit but then you wake up sort of hung over the next morning thinking, oh my gosh, I can't pass a Bechdel test with myself. This is all I'm thinking about. So that's also a way of, um, I guess, commenting on that kind of genre of fiction within, mm -hmm. within a book that's actually practicing in that genre of fiction. I love that. And, and yeah, I, I think it's, I can't imagine anyone who hasn't done some light stalking on social media and then felt... <laughs> kind yeah. of kind of shitty afterwards are you feel well because it's like there's almost a uh sort of version of you you know when you're done doing your horrible deeds you could almost feel it within yourself going you like that you feel better about yourself you're happy now <laughs> you know what have you because even if you find nothing it sucks if you find something it sucks That's even worse yeah and most likely if you find something, it's the wrong thing. And then it becomes disproportionate in size to their life, to your life, to your memory. I mean, there's a bit where she talks about, you know, text exchanges or going through old text exchanges and that strange phenomenon of things, you know, words that were supposed to become memories become emotions again, they become reanimated and that person isn't even there. So they're not even their words, you're not in conversation with them. They are artifacts of who they were. It's almost like I have uh, any writer who's been copy edited um, and maybe you make some sort of intentional choice. You decide to capitalize something, you decide to do something weird with an M dash, whatever it is you decide. And the copy editing department is going through correcting them. And so the first couple of times you think, oh no, no, that's not, I meant it, it's, it's fine, it's not a big deal. <laughs> And then by page 50, you're almost angry as if they are in the room and have not been listening to you, but they're not in the room with you. They haven't gotten that. <laughs> when you're thinking, didn't you hear me? I've said, I've repeated myself so many times. <laughs> stat, 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 stat. And you know, it's not, uh, that is the experience. It's just sort of the editorial version of the experience of reading old text messages, which I'm happy to say that again, major difference. I don't do that. 
this is <laughs> oh good. This is this is my girl who does it. I, I, yeah, I, sure. I've never done yeah. it either. Um, no, I mean I think the only time I've done that personally is by accident because what I do is I keep a lot of text messages so I can find people's addresses for cards or when I need to go to their houses. So I look up because I'm too lazy to add this is sort of ridiculous to explain but I'm too lazy it's not about the book <laughs> I'm too lazy to add it to my um contacts so I'll just look up the word address and at some point a friend of mine has asked for my address or I've asked for theirs and that's how I find out people's addresses and sometimes that will lead me down sort of a um you know a primrose path but with like dead primroses <laughs> <laughs> I love to, 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 think, tip. to things I should not see it's really good because it's really good for people <laughs> it's like an ad for a piece of software I'm like are you too lazy to add <laughs> your friend's addresses to your contacts well have I got the solution for you I um but I do love the metaphor of being copy edited because the ability to say stet and mean it seems like a skill that one has to learn uh, Wait, what do you and mean? it might even have to do with closure and what closure might be but what do you mean to say stat and like to, to say to, to, to say stat. Up for yourself to to say no i meant to do that <laughs> yes yes oh i see what you're saying yes exactly and i think that a lot of the pressure she feels and a lot of the I mean, listen, the book's primary reason for being is to be entertaining. Um, but if there are lessons that I have snuck, <laughs> snuck into it, <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's not just to capture, I mean, obviously I think humor comes from observation and exasperation and uh, I mean, what better, what more fertile ground is there for such things than, than dating, um, you know, the opposite sex. But I do think that there is something that she, I wouldn't take a lot of love lessons or, or, or life lessons from, from Lola. Um, but I do feel like she, she comes to this idea that the pressure to, it's even said both at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, that the pressure to find an inciting incident of why am I like this, you know? Why can't, why did, uh, are other people moving on with their lives? And why am I stuck? That, that pressure might have been the inciting incident. That, that pressure to, you know, you don't have closure unless everyone you've dated before the person that you're in love with is trash. You don't, you know, it, it's, it's that's, that's less pronounced. People don't really put it that way. I'm sure most people listening to this would object, uh, but there's just a way that the other thing that she learns is that it's okay to let the door swing open. You don't have to slam it. And the second she gives herself a break from feeling like, I, you know, oh gosh, I think about all these people. Um, I think about all these roads not taken, or as she puts it, the boats I didn't get on or the boats that just sort of passed me by. Um, is that bad? Is that bad, bad, bad? And I think, and, and, and for her, it is, it is a sort of, poison that seeps into the root system of who she is and into her actions but she learns how to kind of modulate it I, I keep on bringing up drugs as an analogy I don't know what's wrong with me <laughs> but it is almost like you you know when you can touch stuff and that's recreational and it's interesting and it 
makes, you know, it's like a sort of amplifies your life, like salt does to food. And you know, when you're going to have a heart attack and it will kill you, um, you know? And so I think what Clive does is give somebody in a way, it's like her overcoming that addiction to the past, um, which is a dramatic example, but it's just like, I think Clive basically gives her this drug um, that she can't resist taking. Um, but then she, she does manage to pull herself out of it in mysterious non-spoilery ways. Yeah. Yeah. We'll <laughs> talk about it. Hey guys, I want to tell you about a product I'm using literally every day. I started taking AG1 because just with everything going on in my life, I am really bad about consistently taking vitamins. The best part, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It's kind of a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what's in this stuff? In one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. Special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things, which is great for someone like me who's always on the go, especially with all my running. It's really important that I'm getting my daily source of vitamins. Um, but just because I'm so scatterbrained and organized chaos, I just completely forget um, unless I have something that just really makes it straightforward to get everything I need. And AG1 is lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free or gluten-free. And the best part, because while maybe I don't say I'm a healthy eater, at the same time, I really do focus on what I eat, that the fact that it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, while still tasting good, is really important to me. And the extra benefit is it supports better sleep quality and recovery. It also supports mental clarity and alertness. And that's because Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. And best of all, it only costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. You're investing in all-in-one nutritional insurance. And because I said I really do care about where the things I consume come from, Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company. In 2020, AG purchased carbon credits that supports projects protecting old-growth rainforest, as well as donating to organizations that help to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S. In 2020, AG donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. And right now, you can reclaim your health too and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is giving you one free year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com Maris. Again, that is athleticgreens.com Maris. Take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. But, but I, and I also love that because you have a character obsessed with her past, we get to have real fun nostalgia for New York City. Yes. Four decades ago. Oh, the fifth lady, New York City. She, always, always goes down smooth. <laughs> the, the buildings. They the buildings, they sure, they sure are tall. 
They sure are tall. There's so much concrete. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there is a lot of nostalgia for New York. But what's weird about it, it didn't seem like nostalgia when I wrote it. So I handed in this, the first draft of this book, I handed in in the rather uh, inauspicious month and time of March 2020. Uh, Ouch. Yeah, whoops. But I also felt... It's, what's interesting is I thought, oh, there's going to be a whole wave of novels that come out around the time my novel's coming out. And I think some did maybe before. I think we got too skittish about the sort of bottleneck of publishing and what would happen and some combination of will there be printing presses and will the zombies yeah. be running them? You, know, it's, it's <laughs> you still don't questions. know, really. Genu you're like, why are you asking, acting like this is over? Yeah, so these genuine questions we all have. And so I feel like um, I thought oh, this will be interesting. There'll be a whole group of um, sort of pre-pandemic books. And I, I think there some have happened, obviously, but not about New York that much, at least that I haven't really seen. So it's not like I was mm -hmm. consciously avoiding the pandemic or consciously thinking, oh, this New York where we used to run into each other on the street. I mean, the world of this novel would be impossible in our recent world. It's entirely based on public places on facial recognition like it is literally it's it's so and now it it's like it slipped back in or hopefully did just in time for us to have nothing to be nostalgic about you know the city is obviously um different but it's quote unquote back um I think I don't do you think so maybe I'm wrong according to our mayor it is uh <laughs> oh my god am I aligning myself with the mayor <laughs> no That's I would never horrific. imply that um <laughs> I, I I think it's interesting because the city may be back but I am not in a position anymore to know okay. and maybe that is part of the nostalgia right is like this, you have a small kid small child no no oh, just, oh, oh. I'm you know older I'm not oh. trying to like do all oh, that. But you know what's funny is so much gets swept into the dustbin. Like I feel like this idea that there's all these cool parties happening in a warehouse somewhere, like people's apartments and all that stuff. And there's there's sense of it so much in New York and it, uh, excuse me, in the novel, both. <laughs> um, and it, you know, it takes place in a, in a quote unquote cool area, which is the, you know, the Lower East Side and Chinatown. Um, but I feel like I, I think it's like an easy thing, at least for me to say, oh, well, I don't know anymore, you know, post-pandemic. I don't know. I was still pretty old before the pandemic <laughs> and like sort of deeply uncool, like cool stuff hits me. Like a, like it's like a whirling dervish or like an animal where occasionally like whacks its tail in my face. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm at this party with these people and this thing. And then it won't be true for like a month. <laughs> so, so I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough, but I, I did just love even just the, the listing of names of bars that are long gone. Yeah. And again, that's more to do- Oh, I'm sorry, city. that nostalgia. You mean like, I thought you meant the more, oh, whoops. I was a long, a long deviation. No, I mean, you, that, that's part of it for sure. Yeah, but you mean like when, I, when there's a point where it's about, you know, it definitely talks about New York in the early aughts in the nineties um there is a point in the novel where uh she has a relationship with someone when Lola has a relationship with someone when she's an intern in New York and he's a intern for Habitat for Humanity and they write these incredibly emo emails to each other you know that only exists now in the mind of Sally Rooney you know they're just like incredibly long and um 
she describes New York during its theme park phase. So it was like Idlewild, which featured seats from a DC 10 beauty bar. Um, Also in San San Francisco, (laughs) shout out to the beauty bar in San Francisco. Um, All that stuff, you know, uh, the Corova milk bar. Like we don't have theme, like our theme, the theme of New York City bars right now is I'm going to bleed you dry. (laughs) So (laughs) they're so expensive. <laughs> we don't really, you know, we used to have, we used to have sort of, you know, tropical bars, all that stuff, tropical. I, I, sometimes I like to talk about the early days when I was in publishing, and you could go to happy hour in Midtown and spend five dollars and get two drinks. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. And you would spend, and you would get to see a lot of like uh, cop beat reporters who worked at like the Daily News, sort of like grizzled, but very harmless gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not so much anymore. Now mm-hmm. everything's a threat and it's expensive. <laughs> I sound like a 90-year-old lady. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, and, and a last theme I want to touch on sure. before I ask you for books. Um, you also managed to make this book, which is mostly uh, a romantic uh, comedy of manners. It's a great comment on media and the evolution or devolution of of where we are now. Uh, Thank you, because that is definitely like a D plot if this was a uh, pilot of a television show, but it's, it's, uh, I have a soft spot for it. Yeah, they, all these characters used to work for a magazine that is called Modern Psychology, which is um, maybe the least creative part of the book pretty much psychology today, um, except it's folded and it folds. And uh, yeah, that she now, you know, the main character now works for uh, the culture vertical, culture vertical, excuse me, I can't speak, um, at a website called Radio New York. Uh, And just her job doesn't totally exist, but I get it, it sort of exists in like the Buzzfeed form where she, her job is to basically not so much be like a content farmer, but to try to create original content out of other people's lists and articles about other people's podcasts and lists and articles. And I, I, I think I call it the Lloyd Dobler nightmare for the new millennium, you know, and I just, but it's, it, what's weird about it is I think the one thing that I probably got wrong just because I didn't even attempt to get it at all, uh, is I'm sure the kind of bond that these characters feel because they worked in an office putting out a magazine, putting the magazine to bed, um, you know, because it's a psychology magazine or was a psychology magazine, you know, they would stay up arguing about articles about arguing, <laughs> you know, it had this sort of like snake eating its own tail thing and it was a or echo chamber, this incestuousness. And I think I'm sure that exists. Um, in the workplace now too maybe not now now where you know people either aren't going into work or they're hot desking or whatever they're doing right um but i i think that is a little bit maybe of my own nostalgia having worked for random house over 10 years ago uh maybe creeping in there a little bit um you know talking about eating a bunch of salad in plastic bowls that's sort of sort of warmed by the midtown sun is like very new york publishing or old new york media or condi nast you know to me um but it's it's i didn't want to um 
sort of just, you know, shake my hands and, and think, oh, you know, things aren't as they used to be. Uh, so part of the reason why I like that thread in the book is that it's positive. Um, there's sort of an instant acceptance of how things have changed, but they have kept how much they truly love each other um, well after the magazine has, has folded. And so I do think that inadvertently that D plot becomes sort of actually, you know, that, that background, a pretty big part of the love story that Laura, uh, excuse me, that Lola experiences um, because without sounding too hokey, it really is also about um, her friends uh, who without ruining it um, are given uh, a lot of the latter half or the ending of the book. Yes, they are. (laughs) This was so fun. And thank you for your questions. Probably tell that this book is so funny and delightful. Before we go, Mm. please recommend some books for us. I would love to do this because at the aforementioned day job, I I used to be a book publicist and I I miss it. Um, It's so funny. We're on Zoom. So even though I know people can't see me, I just want you to imagine me holding up a book and Vanna Whiting the book. Um, The American Way of Death by Jessica Mitford. Classic, amazing, morbid, um, investigative. It's almost like you asked, you did not ask me to just free associate. I'm just saying single words though for no reason. No, this is very attractive. (laughs) Um, More people in blurbs should do that. (laughs) Good, super good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they sure did print this <laughs> but no uh it's a it's a fantastic um prism with which to see america and mortality and uh there's nothing like it it's just it's just such a um beautiful beautiful book i love the american way of death um i then have three darkly funny ones um one is cassandra at the wedding by dorothy mm. baker which is have you read this oh i loved it oh it's so funny it's so good it has a killer first paragraph um where you sort of look up and you go damn um in in abject jealousy uh also muriel spark loitering with intent um i actually that is the most recent read which is a little bit embarrassing because um i should have read it before now and certainly for various reasons should have read it before cult classic uh but that's not that's not bad if it's if it's even you know uh, 18th cousin removed of, of that book. Um, and then um, I actually reviewed the following uh, for the Times and just adored it. And I'm pretty sure I directly led to the following book getting the Nobel Prize. I don't see how that wouldn't be true. Um, it's Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. Um, and Olga, it's really hard for me to say her last name, but it's Polish. It's, Can you do it? Starts with a K. I don't know. It starts with a T. <laughs> it's it's church. Ch- oh, oh. Chuck. Uh, this is, this is, I, I'm not going to do this. This is too, too humiliating. But I adored that book. And I, I have not read her, her next one yet, but it is on my nightstand. It is my nightstand. It's a very big book. I also, yes. I know. It's, <laughs> right. It's a but um, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. I just, oh, I just love that book. And it's, you know, a literary mystery, I suppose. Yeah. Well, Sloan, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. This is so fun. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.